0: Uh, Mark chapter two, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you pursue the outcasts, that you pursue sinners. God, you're not waiting for us to get our act together, but you have come to us. God, I pray that in your word today, those of us who at some times uh, can relate to the Pharisees, relate to those who justify themselves by keeping the rules. God, I pray that you would cause us to see our need. And God, for those of us who are tempted to see our need and exclude ourselves from grace, God, I pray that we would see the righteousness that you provide for us in your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you speak to us today? Would you teach your people the way that only you can? And would you unite us in faith under one God, one Lord, one salvation, no matter what we've come from or no matter what we are headed to. Lord, if we are in Christ, we are united, we are equals, we are sons and daughters of God. And that is a work that you have done. So God, I pray that you would teach us and lead us today to that end in Jesus name. Amen. Well, boundaries are a good thing. Sorry, I'm going to trip over this cord. Boundaries are a good thing. Whether they are the walls of your house or lane lines on the freeway or barriers along a sheer cliff or a fence around a school. Boundaries protect but they also provide freedom. See, when we used to live on a busy street, we had no fence around our yard. And so it was stressful to let the kids go out and play. There's this appearance of freedom because there's no, nothing confining them. But without those fences, without those barriers, without those boundaries, we can't let our guard down especially on a busy street with children running around and playing. A fence around a yard actually creates freedom because within the boundaries, everyone is safe and you can let your guard down. The rules of a game are boundaries, whether out of bounds lines in some sports or the rules and regulations around each uh, the way each chess piece is allowed to move across the board. The rules don't suppress the enjoyment of the game, but they enhance the game. Who wants to play with someone that doesn't follow the rules? If you're just allowed to like, look, I'm going to move my pawn from here to there and you don't know what to expect. You can't, it's no fun. The boundaries actually create freedom and enjoyment of the game for everyone involved. Boundaries are a good thing. Laws are boundaries. Laws are boundaries. Limits placed around public life in order to promote safety and freedom. And this is what God's law was intended for. The Ten Commandments were boundaries that guided people into loving God and loving one another well. These laws were intended not only to protect Israel from idolatry, but they were to promote trust and love and unity within the community as each person understood everyone else's desire to keep the law. They knew that they could trust. They knew that they were safe. They knew that with one another, they were free. Most importantly, the law showed the people that the, they, showed, they showed the people the holy character of God. By following the law, by observing the law, the rest of the nations were to be able to look at Israel and say, this is what God is like. But there is a dark side to boundaries, Rather than promoting safety and freedom, boundaries can be used to restrict, to imprison, and divide. In this passage, we're introduced to a group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees loved boundaries. The Pharisees loved boundaries. The Pharisees are a group of people that arose in Israel after Israel's return from the exile. They arose during that 400 and so year period between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. And we know from other historical records and from the scriptures that the Pharisees believed that the reason God had sent Israel into exile was because of their lack of regard. Their, their, their refusal to follow the law, and so upon returning to the land the Pharisees were absolutely committed to seeking uh, is, uh, to seeking Israel's faithfulness to the law. They sought Israel uh, to, to walk in faithfulness to God's law so that nothing like the exile would ever happen again. And so they gave themselves to understanding and strictly obeying God's law. Now, I think it's funny the way that Pharisees are often portrayed in children's Bibles they're always super shady looking characters who are clearly up to no good. They're like hoods over their faces. You can only see like the bottom half. They look like the, the Sith from Star Wars. They're just like these evil figures in children's Bibles. But uh, in fact, uh, the word today, Pharisee, has become synonymous with hypocrite. But that is not at all the way the Pharisees were viewed by the people in Israel during their time. The Pharisees had the respect and the admiration of the people. They promoted godliness. They promoted righteousness. They they ran the synagogues where people could study the scriptures and pray. The synagogues were the center of the Jewish community. They would would reach out if anyone had need and and help one another. The Pharisees were a highly, highly respected people. They kept the worship of God front and center center in Jewish life. They were the theological conservatives. The Pharisees were. The Sadducees were the theological liberals. The Pharisees were the theological conservatives fighting for biblical faithfulness and holy living, fighting to honor the boundaries in God's law and holding Israel accountable for crossing those boundaries. There's actually quite a bit we can find in common with the Pharisees. The Pharisees devoted their lives to waiting for Messiah to come and We're longing for the day when Christ returns. The, the, the Pharisees were in anguish under social and cultural pressures to compromise their faith. We too are pressured by our peers and by culture to compromise our faith or our theology in order to fit into a modern society. The Pharisees had a high moral standard And throughout the history of the Christian faith, the church has always maintained a very high moral standard. There is so much that we have in common with the Pharisees. We can't just read the word Pharisee and go, oh, those are the hypocrites and pass them off. We need to see our opportunity to identify with them. There's a lot that we have in common. But at the heart of the life of a Pharisee is this virtue of separation. In fact, uh, many scholars believe that the best definition of the word Pharisee is separatist. This came from their strict belief that God had called Israel to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to be separate from the nations. They were to be different than the other nations and they were to live differently than the other nations. And so they endeavored to live a life that was as unstained by sin as possible. And so this meant not only did they observe a strict moral virtue in their own life, but they completely rejected anyone that did not have that same virtue. So the Pharisees did not associate with any form of, of uh, uh, Greek or Roman influence. They were the enemy. They were unclean. They were the Gentiles. They were cast off from God. They had nothing to do with them. But then this behavior then extended to their own Jewish brothers and sisters who did not have the same time or privilege to study the law or showed a a, a lower regard for the law. They just completely wrote them off. Instead of being the shepherds of Israel that God had called them to, to lead them into faithfulness and righteousness, they put up a barrier and they separated themselves from the common people. And so those who didn't follow the Pharisees' teachings or traditions were lumped together with another group of people who are guilty of all manner of transgression and together this group was called sinners. They were the sinners. This group of sinners in Levi's house were the spiritual and social outcasts. They were those who had been rejected by the Pharisees, those who had been rejected by the religious leaders. And so the Pharisees had nothing to do with them. And in separating from them, the Pharisees created in the culture two classes of people. There were the Pharisees who were the righteous and there were everyone else, the sinners. And the chiefest of sinners were the tax collectors. Tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for Rome. They worked for God's enemies to collect taxes and other tolls. But worse than that, worse than just being in league with Rome, many of them were corrupt themselves. They charged more than the law allowed and they made themselves wealthy by skimming off the top. They took advantage of their own people, their own poverty, and they made themselves wealthy at the legal allowance of the nation oppressing their brothers and sisters. And so tax collectors were universally hated by the people. They were hated by the people and they were rejected by the Pharisees and tax collectors were excommunicated from the synagogue, separated from the synagogue and even rejected by their own members of their own family, lest their family be excommunicated from the synagogues. The Pharisees actually taught that if a tax collector entered your home, everything in that house was unclean. You'd have to just straight up move. Everything would be made unclean. Last week, The scene in Mark's gospel that we studied showed Jesus' compassion and willingness to forgive sin. But this passage shows us how Jesus relates to the sinner themselves. He befriends them. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Levi was a tax collector. And Jesus calls him to discipleship. He calls him to follow him. And Levi gets up immediately, leaves his tax booth, and follows Jesus. Jesus calls a man whose life's work has been conspiring with God's enemies. And in an instant, he goes from being Israel's enemy to a follower of Israel's Savior. Where were you when Jesus called you? What was going on in your life when you heard his voice, when you heard the gospel? Where were you when Jesus called you? Maybe this was years ago. Maybe you're only now beginning to hear or learn his voice today. Whether you were raised in the church or full of rebellion against God. If Jesus calls us to follow him, we are instantaneously transformed from an enemy of God to his friend. He makes us his friend. And so Levi is clearly impacted by this drastic change of circumstances in his life that he throws a banquet in Jesus' honor. Now, if a tax collector entered your home and it made your home unclean, what does it mean for a man to step into a tax collector's home? Now, how do we know it's not good? That's right. How do we know that this is Levi's home? Because actually, You could read this and it sounds like it might be Jesus' home. Well, if you turn over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke's account in this is clearly an interpretation. He clearly interprets that this is Levi's house. So Levi throws a banquet jesus and his disciples come and the house is full of the only people who would willingly publicly associate with a man like levi this is an assembly of the lowest of the low this is an assembly of the riffraff and scoundrels and so the pharisees take issue with it this is like uh, every movie uh, about the new kid in school right you have to be very strategic about where you eat lunch. Right? You have to be very strategic and very cautious about what table you sit at because on your first day of school, if you associate with the wrong group of people, you will forever be labeled with that group of people. Any 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 movie that takes place in high school, this is like the primary theme, right? Jesus associates with the lowest of the low. He willingly sits down for lunch, so to speak, in the cafeteria at the table of the outcasts of society, something that the Pharisees would have never done. And so they go to the disciples and they say, why does your master eat with these scumbags? Not only does he associate with them, not only does he talk with them, but he eats with them. Table fellowship in this day was an intimate space. It was sharing life with someone. And you would only do that with someone of a relatively uh, similar social class. So the Pharisees only ate with people like them. And the, the, the tax collectors and sinners only ate with people like them. You never saw people of a Higher righteousness, a higher standing in society, sitting and eating with people like this. But Jesus willingly sets all that aside and chooses to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. In the minds of the Pharisees, if Jesus was truly from God, he would reject these people just like they had. He would have rejected them and so they they he would have separated themselves from him from all of them. And so it eventually gets back to Jesus that the Pharisees are asking this question. And he responds by saying, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Doctors almost exclusively associate themselves with the sick. And so Jesus interprets his mission in similar terms. The righteous are not the ones who need his help. The sinners are the ones who need salvation. And so to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing for associating with the tax collectors and sinners would be like accusing doctors and nurses today of wrongdoing by treating COVID patients and therefore disregarding social distancing protocols. You can't accuse Jesus of wrongdoing for taking care of those who need him. And so Jesus' words here can be understood in two different ways. his, His saying, what he says, can be read in two different ways. One way is to say that the Pharisees don't actually need Jesus' help. That they are already righteous and they don't need him. And so Jesus is here to say, kudos Pharisees. Thanks for holding the line. I'll take it from here. That is, that's one way that we could read this passage. But we need to take scripture in context. Not just The immediate context, but in the context of the whole Bible and everything that Jesus has ever said to the Pharisees outside of this gives us clear context for how to understand it. He's being ironic. Jesus is being uh, a little bit sarcastic in here. He's saying not that the Pharisees don't need him. The righteous don't need him. He's saying that none are righteous. There is no one. Who is righteous? The Pharisees had used their boundaries, had used the law to create a barrier between themselves and everyone else, and Jesus moves that barrier. It no longer divides Pharisee from sinner, but the barrier actually divides and separates Jesus. From everyone else. Yet instead of separating himself from everyone else, he climbs over the barrier and ransoms anyone who will acknowledge their need for God. He climbs over the barrier and invites them to follow him. There were many tax collectors and sinners that followed Jesus. The only prerequisite was that they recognized their need. You see, the Pharisees were not actually righteous. The Pharisees were self-righteous. See, righteousness, we need to understand this definition of, of righteousness. Righteousness doesn't mean that you do all things right. Righteousness means that you live in right relationships with all. Righteousness means that you live in a right relationship with God and with everyone else. That is what righteousness is about. Self-righteousness is the neglect of our right relationships with one another to pursue a selfish relationship, a selfish obedience to God. Again, the irony is that you cannot obey God apart from pursuing right relationships with one another. And so therefore, if we use the Pharisees' own categories All people, including the Pharisees, are in the same category. Sinners. We're all sinners. But the good news is that Jesus came to save sinners. Isn't that good news? You're a sinner. And so therefore that makes you eligible for God's grace. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save anyone who would acknowledge their need for him. Jesus pursues the outcasts and the sinners. His, his radical compassion toward those who have been marginalized magnifies the grace of God, puts the grace of God front and center. Because if Jesus only called the righteous people, he would be no different than the Pharisees themselves. They actually, people wouldn't need them. They had hundreds of Pharisees. Why would they need Jesus to just come and do the same things? But he resolves himself to seek out those who have never been given a chance. He resolves himself to seek out those who have found themselves on the wrong side of society, who have been pushed out and marginalized. And he resolves himself to seek out those who have made a mess of their lives. That's. This is all of us. This is all of us. And by doing so, Jesus turns the societal hierarchy on its head. The Pharisees believed that they had earned the right to see Messiah, and Levi's friends knew that they deserved nothing from God. Do we believe that we've earned the right? For God to listen to us. Do we believe that we've earned the right to enter the kingdom of God because of our activities, because of our behavior, because of our holding the line, because of our boundaries? Or are we like Levi and his friends recognizing that we have nothing to offer and everything to gain? That by Jesus' presence, by Jesus bringing in the kingdom, the only way we have a shot at stepping foot in his world is if he does something for us. We are in desperate need. It is clearly a gift of his grace that these tax collectors and sinners are welcomed into following Jesus. Jesus' relentless pursuit of these people the marginalized and the sinners means that if we want to be included in the kingdom that Jesus brings, we too need to identify not with the righteous, but with the least in society. Jesus isn't looking for the best and brightest. He's not looking for you to clean up your life. He's not looking for you to meet a particular standard. He's not looking for the person with the best resume for anyone who will do the right thing. He's looking for those who know that they can't. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, separate, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men If our aim in life and if our aim in faith is to prove to Jesus how worthy we are, we will actually miss out on what Jesus wants to do for us. We will actually exclude ourselves from the work of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't pursue righteousness. We must, we must pursue righteousness, but we pursue it humbly. Giving credit to Jesus for whatever righteousness we do have. It doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The Apostle Paul said, It is now, therefore, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There was a 16th century English reformer named John Bradford. John Bradford, upon watching a host of criminals being led to their execution has been quoted in saying, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Recognizing that if it wasn't for the powerful working of God's grace in his own life, he would be capable of the same atrocities that led these criminals to their execution. If we want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. It's not feats of strength. It's not signs of morality. It's not an impressive resume that gets his attention. It is a broken and contrite heart. It's a longing and desperation for something more than we could ever provide for ourselves. It's a recognition that even the smallest transgression against God's law is breaking the whole thing. And it's knowing that the only chance we have to stand before a holy God is if he chooses to do something about our sin because we can't do it ourselves. The Pharisees didn't believe that they had any need and so they miss out on what God is doing in Jesus. This is the danger of self-righteousness. It blinds. It blinds us to our need. Just like medicine, the first step to spiritual healing is recognizing that there is, in fact, a problem. And anyone who acknowledges their sin and recognizes their need for a savior will be invited to find salvation in Jesus. But those who are good enough In their own eyes, those who sit in judgment over others and justify themselves for their spiritual accomplishments, who believe that God owes them something for their righteousness, whose standing before God is rooted in their ability to separate themselves from sin, will effectively separate themselves from Jesus because they don't believe that they need him. They've become their own saviors. It's the outcasts. It's the sinners that find themselves at table with Jesus. It's the down and outs that are invited into the kingdom. It's you and I. It's you and I that he invites into the kingdom, not because of our righteousness, but because of grace. He invites us in through faith. And so Jesus' pursuit of the outcasts and sinners means that the church must be a safe place for the outcasts and sinners. It's a place to be known for who you are, loved in spite of your failures. The church is a place for us to follow Jesus together, knowing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that Jesus himself has pursued us. We were not so smart or so honorable to be able to figure it out and make our way to Jesus, but it's Jesus who pursued us. He sought us, he called us. And like Levi, all we have to do is get up and follow. The church is a safe place, not only for those who are beginning to follow Jesus, but those who have been following Jesus their entire lives and still find that we're not righteous yet. Sometimes it's easy for the person who's just coming to faith to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. This is all my garbage. And we see that and we're like, yes, God, you're calling sinners to yourself. The lost will be found. You're leaving the 99 to pursue the one. This is a beautiful thing. But after we follow Jesus for a while, you're like, man, I've been doing this for a while and I'm still getting it wrong and no one can know. Isn't that ridiculous? Look, you were an enemy of God. God knew all that you were up to and he pursued you and he loved you and he called him to yourself, called you to himself. How much more so now that he's made you a friend? He hasn't all of a sudden like stopped seeing your sin. Like, no, you're my friend. Don't tell me. He knows it. How much more so will you find grace in your Savior now that he calls you friend? Church, we can't begin in grace just to become Pharisees. Our sin is ever before us and it is ever before Jesus. He does not regard you as separate from him. He has saved you. So stop regarding yourself as separate from us. Bring your whole self, bring your authentic self, bring your sin, your shame, your guilt, your garbage, your poverty, all of it. Bring it here. This is the only place in the world that you are safe to bring that stuff. Jesus loves you. He forgives you. He calls you to himself. The church needs to be a safe place for our authentic selves. For those of you who are here today weighed down by sin, maybe sin of this past week, the past month, the past years, Jesus is calling you to himself not to rub your nose in it, not to punish you, not to to cast you aside. He's calling you to follow him. He's calling you to be with him. He wants you to be near to him, not because you are worthy, but so that you may become, or sorry, not so that you may become worthy, but because he has made you worthy. See, self-righteousness says that I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says you are accepted, therefore you obey. We pursue righteousness not to make ourselves worthy, but we pursue righteousness because Jesus has made us worthy. And as we follow him, he invites us into his work of pursuing the lost, pursuing the outcasts and sinners. And so the church as the body of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, who are with him, learning from him and becoming like him, we're to embody not only his teaching, but his way of life. And this means that the church should strive to have the same compassion and the same pursuit of those deemed unworthy by society's standards. So who are those in our community? Who are those people in Carpinteria and the coastlands who have been marginalized, who have been pushed aside, who have been declared too far gone? Who has the church been tempted to disassociate with for fear of social or spiritual contamination? Who, how has the church sought not just to engage, but to love and include the homeless community? How has the church sought to love and include those who are mentally ill, those who are addicted to drugs and alcohol? How have we sought to love and include those in gangs? What is the attitude of the church towards those who come to Carpinteria to party and trash the place? Are we pursuing them? Are we loving them? Are we including Them, What about those who are neglected or marginalized because their religious views differ from ours? How have we sought to engage Catholics and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Buddhists? How have we sought to engage witches and Satanists? They're here. Is this a safe place for someone to bring all of their wrong ideas about God? Yes, bring it. Bring all of it here. You're not justified by your right ideas. You're justified by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. How have we sought to engage those who are poor? How have we sought to engage those who've been separated by a language barrier, the Hispanic community in Carpinteria? How have we sought to engage those who have been marginalized by their age, either the elderly or the youth, pushed aside? How have we sought to engage those whose society casts out? It's very comfortable to live in a Christian bubble. Very comfortable to live in a Christian bubble. But when Jesus showed up, he didn't call people in the bubble. He called ordinary, uneducated, and sinful people to follow him. What does our dinner table look like? Who are our friends? Does your circle of friends look like Levi's house party? Or does it look like people of similar spiritual, social levels? People who are just like us. The tax collectors and sinners were attracted to Jesus because he treated them like human beings. He treated them like those who are made in the image of God. He searched them out. He showed them honor regardless of what they were able to do for him because they were made for him. They were made in his image. And so as disciples of Jesus, we are called to embody his teaching and his way of life. Our health as a church Reality Carpinteria, success as a church is not going to be defined by the number of people in the seats. It's not going to be defined by the quality of our programs running throughout the week. Our health as a church is not going to be defined by the sermon connoisseur or by those who are chasing after a worship experience. We're the body of Christ and so our health and vitality as a church will be defined by how much we look like Jesus. And that doesn't mean that Jesus lowers his standards. Jesus unashamedly preached the truth of sin and judgment, and yet also brought the good news of the kingdom everywhere he went. Jesus was absolutely committed to living a life of righteousness. He called people to a higher standard than even the most righteous people could imagine. He said, you have been told don't murder. I tell you, don't even hate that man because you've murdered him in your heart. He takes the bar and he raises it. He doesn't say, hey guys, God doesn't actually care about righteousness anymore. Isn't that good news? Who wants to follow that God? We want justice. We want righteousness. We look around, the world is broken. I don't want to follow a God who sweeps it under the rug and winks at sin. No, Jesus raises the bar. He says, even your best righteousness. He tells people, he says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't do that. I can't do that. The only way we can do that is if Jesus decides to just call us righteous, to give us that status. And even in this higher standard, even in in taking the barrier that was between God and man and saying "It's it's it's actually higher than you think it is, He doesn't separate himself. He tears the barriers down that separate people, whether by theology or race or socioeconomic status or cultural acceptability. And in doing so, in ushering in the kingdom and tearing down those barriers, he casts out demons, he cleanses lepers, he heals the sick, and he calls a tax collector a friend of God. He is changing everything. Reality Carpinteria, do we have the stomach for this kind of ministry? This is not going to be easy. This, there's going to be times that this is not going to be fun. But this is going to be following Jesus and following what he has led us into. Are we ready to get uncomfortable? Things are about to get uncomfortable. They've been uncomfortable sitting outside. We're about to move inside. There's air conditioning and a heater. And we're going to be like, oh, so comfortable. But you know what? There better be sinners in there as well. And that's going to make everything uncomfortable. Are we ready to get out of the bubble? It'll be significantly easier to just come here on Sundays, sing a few songs, pray together, you know, hear an encouraging message and go home. But we might miss out on what God is doing. We will miss out on what God is doing. He's looking for those who will pursue the outcasts and the sinners among us, not to shame them into obedience, but to welcome them into grace. But in order to do that, we must be ever aware of our own need for grace, our own the grace that we have received. Sin has created a barrier between us and God, but Jesus seeks to save sinners. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus pursues the outcasts and sinners. He calls us to pursue the outcasts and sinners, not so that we'll be known by our righteousness, but so that God will be known by his grace so that God will be known by what he has done for us. And so the only way that we'll ever be able to recognize our spiritual poverty and associate with the undesirables in our neighborhood is by recognizing that our king and creator, Jesus Christ, though he was God in the flesh, though he had lived in perfect righteousness, yet he regarded his status as a small thing to set aside. And he became an outcast himself by associating with us. And he was rejected by those who saw themselves as being more important than the Messiah. And so Jesus' pursuit of us didn't just put him around a dinner table with outcasts and sinners. It put him on a cross, crucified like a common criminal, crucified with criminals to his right and to his left. And on the cross, the penalty for our sin was laid on him and, dying for sin he made you righteous there was a man hanging on the cross next to him and said Jesus remember me when you enter your kingdom this man was a sinner this man was cast off this man was being executed for his crimes and because of his faith Jesus said I tell you the truth today you'll be with me in paradise no matter who you are, no matter how much more life you have left to live, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your trust in the kingdom that he has brought, the doors of which he has blown open and allowed anyone and everyone to enter in who recognize their need, if you put your trust in Jesus, you will be with him in paradise. And he has invited us into this. The length that Jesus was willing to go to make you his friend is our motivation. We won't be able to associate with the lowly until we recognize how low Jesus had to go for me, for you. When you recognize how low Jesus had to go, I have a friend who was a pastor in Los Angeles for a long time who called Jesus the original dumpster diver. He went that low to get from the garbage. Those that he loved to call to himself. And he calls us to learn also to pursue those who are far from Jesus. These things are especially relevant to us in our season of our church. We are setting a course together. This is a new season. And the decisions we make today will have massive implications for the future of our church, for the future of our ministry. Are we going to be a church of theological elitists? Or are we going to be a church full of sinners saved by grace? Are we going to be a church who believes that we're entitled to what we have or to uh, be a church that is, that is, is, is grateful and, and rejoices for what we have because everything is a gift of grace? Are we going to be a church that pursues comfort or a church that pursues the lost of all walks of life? Will we be a refuge from sinners or will we be a refuge for sinners? So I want to give you a challenge. There's homework this week. I want to offer you one practical way to respond this week. Make a list. Make a list of the people in your life who don't know Jesus. Whether they are high class or low class, makes no difference. Make a list of the people in your life who don't know Jesus. Could be 10 people, could be one person. Commit to praying for them this week. Commit to asking Jesus to show you how he is pursuing them and to invite you into that pursuit of them. Invite them to coffee or a meal following social distancing protocols. Sit down with them and lovingly and graciously invite them to church. The only way this is going to be a safe place for outcasts and sinners is if we actually invite outcasts and sinners into them. We're not going to say, Hey, you're an outcast. Want to come to church? You're a sinner. Want to come to church? Jesus loves you. I love you. You should come to church with me. Invite them to church. What's the worst that could happen? They could say no, right? They could say no. They could totally, you know, reject your invitation and that's okay. Because Jesus invitation to the kingdom is rejected by those. He loves every single day, every single day, Jesus is rejected. Now, maybe you're here and you're saying like, that's a great idea. I wish I knew some non-believers. This is your opportunity to pray that God would bring people into your life who don't know Jesus. That God would fill your life with difficult people so that you can show them love, not because they're amazing, but because Jesus is amazing. Pray and invite God to bring those people into your life. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus. Know for certain that he's pursuing you. You cannot come to church and then say God is not pursuing you. Your presence here is evidence that God is pursuing you, that God is calling you to himself, that God wants you to know his grace, that God wants you to know his love, that God wants you to know what he has done to call you friend. He's not asking you to be any different than you are. He knows exactly who you are and he loves you and he knows that you can't fix yourself. And if you could, it would only be self-righteousness. It would only be the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. But Jesus wants to make you righteous by what he does. And so if this is you, then like Levi, Jesus is calling you to follow him. Get up and follow him. Be a disciple, which means spending time with Jesus in scripture and in prayer, learning from him and becoming like him. Invite the Holy Spirit into your life to show you what Jesus is doing and so that you can follow him. Connect with someone before you leave. Someone who maybe they dragged you here this morning and just say, I think Jesus is calling me to follow him. If you're here on your own, you don't know anyone, come up and talk to me. I think Jesus is calling me to follow him. You are here. The words of Christ to you are follow me. Let's get up together and follow him. Don't leave without making a decision. Church, all of this is so that we will not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. And so we need to take courage and take steps of faith to see what God will do. Jesus came to invite sinners into his kingdom and praise God that that includes each and every one of us. And so we celebrate together. We rejoice together and we go from this place into Carpentaria, the coastlands and the nations. And like Jesus, we invite anyone and everyone to the banquet, the banquet that he has prepared. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you who were high in heaven, glorified, sitting on a throne for eternity past, left it and became a human being. Lord, took on flesh, born into an impoverished family to a young woman who was only called immoral for giving birth out of wedlock. God, you were raised in a society that would have called you illegitimate. From your very first breath, you were an outcast in society. But God, your rejection that you experienced has made us accepted. God, that you were cut off from God on the cross. You who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And God, we just want to say that we believe this. Lord, Wherever we've come from, whoever we are, however long we've been following Jesus or not following Jesus, the invitation is the same, to believe that by your death, we are accepted. God, thank you that you rose from the grave, proving that our grave will not have the last word on us, but we have been united in your resurrection and we will live in your kingdom eternally for what you've done. God, you know where we're at. You know what's going on in our hearts. You know what we need. What we need is you. And so God, I pray that you would manifest yourself to our minds and our hearts in this place in a way that only you can do, that teaches us and leads us into grace. Thank you for saving sinners. Thank you that that includes us. God, teach us to follow you in all of life be glorified in our lives, in Carpinteria, in the coastlands, in the nations. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.